Holy sexuality. Have you ever put those two words together? Does it make sense to call sexuality holy? In the world we live in, there can be a lot of hurt, confusion, or misunderstanding surrounding the idea of sexuality and how we are to live it out. But God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the maker of humanity and the designer of our sexuality, has a lot to say on the topic. Join us as we dive into God's Word and discover His design for sexuality and, and how, how it, it can truly be holy. All right, Trinity Church, how you doing? Happy Sunday to you, this first Sunday, this first day of March. We're really glad that you're here and that you made it a point to make this a part of your weekend. If you're a guest with us, a very special welcome to you. Thanks for being here. And you're with us at the very beginning of a brand new series. You'll note it's kind of all over the place, uh, up on the screens on your Trinity this week, in your notes, uh, called Holy Sexuality. Some people thought that the cartoon character Robin might have come up with this. Holy Sexuality, Batman, but uh, that's not what it is. And we're excited to dive into it with you today. My name's Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity. It's a privilege to get to be here with you today and a privilege to be able to share the stage with my good friend Donna Stark. Would you welcome Donna today? So Donna's been providing some great leadership to our women's ministries for years, and so we're excited. We're going to kind of share this topic a little bit today, this first topic in this series called Defining and Describing Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. If you look in your Trinity this week, you have some notes that look like these. If you want to get those out, that'll help you track with us. If you have a Bible today, if you want to, it's actually a real easy place to go, Genesis chapter 1, very first page. If you find your way there, and, and it makes sense that a foundationary our foundational message in a brand new series would start at the very beginning, and that's where we're going to be. A couple of things as you're doing that, if you look in your notes at the end, it has that point that we talked about a couple weeks ago called parenting prompts. So we've said at the beginning of this series that we believe most messages to be what I would call PG-13. Now, that's not any kind of standard. It's more of just to you as parents with little ones, that just to be aware of that and be thoughtful related to the topics that we'll be talking about over these six weeks. But the also thing, we don't want to just also go, well, that's true, but, you know, we, we don't, we want to be silent and then related to you helping you with your kids. We've included something called parenting prompts. They'll be there in every week of this series. They're kind of aimed at maybe about an eight-year-old, so you can tweak them uh, either direction for the age of your kids. But our goal is we do want to help you give tools to these all-important conversations that you're having with your kids. And waiting until they're teenagers to talk about these things is not helpful. And the biggest reason why is because they're hearing it on so many fronts other than from you and other than from the church. And that's really why we're doing this series, The Big Picture. We live in a, in a world that has lots of voices, lots of opinions on all things related to sexuality. But what we want to do is not continue to be silent on the topic because God in his word is very vocal. He has much for us to know. And as we go to that, we just, it just makes sense. Would the creator of our sexuality be the one who actually informs our understanding of our sexuality? It just makes sense. We want to live according to his design and be aware of what he wants to tell us. So that's kind of what the goal is in this series. One of the aspects that we're going to do on a weekly basis, we've added a few things. If you look at the very front of our website, there's always four buttons at the bottom. If you click on the one 
related to this series is going to take you to a page that has multiple resources. You might have noticed in people's social media related to Trinity, we've been kind of putting stuff out there all week long, just making people aware of this new topic and this new series we're looking at. But one of the other buttons there uh, relates to, number one, if you have a question about things related to sexuality, there is a place you can click that is complete anonymity. There's no email attached. There's no um, uh, phone number like a text. It's just a page that has real briefly, uh, what's your question? And then as you send that, what's going to happen is there's another link on that front page that Hilke and I, our family pastor, are going to be doing a weekly podcast. And our hope is to be able to address some topics that we maybe don't have time for in these six messages and to be able to make stuff more and more helpful and accessible to you, the real issues that you're walking through and going through related to how do we, how does God want us to think about things related to sexuality and the issues that our culture is dealing with. So we want to really inform and be as helpful to you as possible. So that's the big picture of kind of where we're going. Every week, we're going to identify a resource for you. This is the one I'm identifying today. You can tell we played a little bit with our series title, even from this book, called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. It's written by Christopher Yuan. Christopher is a Bible professor at Moody Institute of the Bible, or College University of the Bible. It's probably what it's called now. And Christopher does this great job of laying out a very foundational understanding to the reality of what does God say about our human sexuality, how is it to be holy, and how does the gospel really lay the foundation of everything? And so I couldn't recommend this book enough. It's been a good read for me personally. I've been informing our series. I'll quote from it today. Christopher's story is basically he just kind of lived according to what we all do, and we have no idea of the gospel, lived his own way. And ultimately, what he shares this great story at the beginning of the book is how God used his mom. His mom had come to Christ later in life, and she just began praying for her son. He even found his way into prison, and it was in prison while his mom was praying for him that Christopher put his faith in Christ, and ultimately a whole story that is continuing on today has come out of that. So I think you'll be blessed by this really informed and really thoughtful on this topic that lays a great foundation for us. So weekly, we'll be sharing with you some other resources that we think would be helpful to you as you're just trying to form a biblical understanding. This is really what we're trying to do throughout this series, is we simply want to echo what the Bible teaches related to our sexuality. And one big idea I want you to grab from the beginning of today is this, is that when we talk about this very significant part of our personhood, is the idea of understanding that all of human sexuality was always meant to be a holy sexuality. Those two words are not in contradiction to one another. So as we begin to talk through this idea today, we're going to lay a foundation related to as God has made men and women. What does that mean in relationship? You'll, you'll see how this foundation will be key into the rest of the series that we dive into. Two things I'm convinced of as we begin this series today. The first one is this. There is more hurt and more brokenness related to these topics that we're going to be looking at the next six weeks than I'm aware of. More brokenness, more hurt in this room for those that are out on the pavilion and those watching online. There's more than I'm aware of, and I get that. But what I also want you to know that there is more hope in the person of Jesus and in his great news than you have experienced yet. And on a weekly basis, my goal is to be able to introduce you more to him and introduce you more to his hope and what he can do in the middle of your story. 
This, the goal of our series will not be an information dump, and definitely not for the goal of further stoking some potential view that your particular view that you have, or demonstrating how this is really important for other people in your life. The goal is primarily, it's what it always is, and if I've never been clear about this, let me be crystal today. The goal of every week when we get up on this stage is to further equip you to live a life rooted in Jesus as you're reaching your world. That's what every single message, every series is all about. So that's our hope, is that you would first consider this message today as we look at God's word for your own life, and then think through what does this mean and how does this relate to the people in my relational world and how I can be a person of influence in their lives. The kind of approach that we're going to engage on a weekly basis is summed up by Paul as he writes to the Ephesian church. He said this in Ephesians 4.15, that we are going to be a people speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, and as we do that, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So today, here's our now what statement in your notes and on the screen. Because your gender is God-given, live out his design that created you to be a man or a woman. Number one in your notes today, the goodness of God is demonstrated in the creating of two genders. The goodness of God is demonstrated in the creating of two genders. We said your Bibles are open to Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So as we dive in today, we're going to begin our time. Don and I are going to speak to each point. She's going to begin our time today. Would you welcome her up today? Um, I want to say a phrase, and then I'd like for you to try to hang on to the first thought that pops into your mind. And the phrase is the beauty of God's creation. If you, if what popped into your mind was part of God's nature, maybe something like Yosemite or Grand Canyon, or for me, it would be being out away from a city on a dark night where you can literally look up and see hundreds and hundreds of stars. But as spectacular as those things are, they are not the crowning achievement of God's creation. That is you and me. As plain and simple as we may look, Genesis tells us that after all those things were created, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. These are probably three of the most significant words in the whole Bible, in his image. We humans are image bearers of God Most High, and not just those who are believers in Christ, but every human, every person you run into in a store, every person you see anywhere is an image bearer of God. I'd like to just talk about, it's kind of hard to uh, understand how exactly we are uh, image bearers when nothing else is. And I'd like to just uh, go to, to uh, just a couple of aspects of how we are set apart from the animals. One aspect is the mental aspect. 
If you think about when God created Adam and Eve, if they wanted to have a conversation with each other, they needed to be standing in close proximity to each other, be able to see each other. Um, but fast forward and through the amazing human brain that God created, there have been so many innovations that you or I can stand here with a device in our hands and see and talk to someone on the other side of the world. It is amazing what the human brain has come up with. On the other hand, beavers still build dams the same way they've built them all uh, since the, they were created. And birds still build the same kind of nest that they do. No big innovations there from beaver brains or, or bird brains. <laughs> Another aspect is the spiritual aspect. We humans were created with the ability to relate to God. We relate to him by being able to praise him, to pray to him, to read his word and gain um, insights and, and guidance from him. But on the other hand, no chimpanzee will ever read the word and praise God or pray for the salvation of a friend. And being, in God's, being God's image bearer gives dignity and worth to every human being, regardless of their age, their race, their intelligence, their political or religious beliefs. Understanding that everyone has this status of image bearer should affect how we value and how we relate to anyone. This next quote by Gwen Grudem, I thought, gave a thought-provoking picture of how our thinking on this being an image bearer affects our outlook on everything. He says, if we ever deny our unique status in creation as God's only image bearers, we will soon begin to depreciate the value of human life. We'll tend to see humans as merely a higher form of animal and will begin to treat others as such. We will also lose much of our sense of meaning in life. So knowing that God created us in his image truly should affect everything in our lives. Awesome. Thank you, Donna. Now, realize as we're looking at things today through the lens of Scripture, we're just reinforcing one of the core values that we've been talking about. We began 2020 identifying six core values that are really very much our guardrails. This is what we really make much of at Trinity. And one of those relates to the authority of Scripture, that the Bible really is for us something that is more than suggestive, but it's really meant to demonstrate this is what we're according, according to live to. And so here's our core value to remind you, the Bible is God's story given to transform you and to be the authority in your life. So we're just reinforcing that today while we're looking at Scripture. Don has done a great job of identifying how our humanity makes us unique as image bearers. My role in this first point is to talk about how the distinction of male and female. Remember, that was the last line from that passage in Genesis 1. Male and female, God made them, and they represent his image. So let's talk a little bit on that idea, how these two genders uniquely reflect the image of God. First off, to say that the genders of male and female reflect God's image is not to suggest that God is sexual. Think about that for a second. 
that he is either both sexes or some combination of both. Jesus said in John chapter 4 that God doesn't have a body, that he is spirit. So he's an altogether a different being. So communicating that the maleness or the femaleness of humans bears the image of God, it must mean something different than that. Mark Cortez put it this way, you can see this quote on the screen, although recognizing that God is not a sexually differentiated being as humans are, we can affirm that human sexuality mirrors something important about the divine nature. So that, that's a key thing, and that's what I wanna talk about. There's something about the distinction of these sexes that demonstrates together the character of God, what they can't apart. So think of it this way, something about the way that God made a woman, that he designed a woman, reflects his character, being distinct from the fact that she's merely human, and even distinct from the fact that she's man. Similarly, something about the way that God designed a man reflects his character that's distinct from him simply being a human being, and even distinct from being a woman. There's something about the way that God has done this that demonstrates his, his unique character, his image in our lives. So though our purpose in this series is not to weekly necessarily talk about marriage, because marriage, think about this, does not define you as male or female, meaning you were a male or a female long before you met your spouse. So that's not the point. But marriage actually, though, on this point, it demonstrates something powerful because it demonstrates that though these two sexes, these genders are different, when they come together in a one flesh committed marriage relationship, they actually demonstrate the character of God in probably the most full way. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is talking on the subject of marriage, and he goes back and he quotes Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Look what he says. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? That's just quoting what we read a moment ago. And then he, and he said, for this reason, this is Genesis 2, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and here's that phrase, and the two will become one flesh. So meaning this, in our distinctiveness as male and female, when we come together in marriage, there's something about that union. Don is going to talk later today about Ephesians 5 when Paul says there's this mystery about Christ and his church being united as the, the groom and the bride. And so something in this marriage relationship demonstrates that unity of these two image bearers being put together in relationship. Now today, I'm not trying to make some political statement about marriage, but simply to lay as a foundation moving forward that the God-ordained description of marriage is rooted in the union of one man and one woman for their lifetimes, and watch this, as it reflects the image of God in a way that no other combination can. The book that I recommended earlier today, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, Christopher Yuan has this great comment related to how the essential, how essential it is that we understand that our distinctive gender is part of God's sovereign design. Look at this quote, it's in your notes and on the screen. The imago Dei, the image of God, and being male or female are essential to being human. When denying this physical and genetic reality, we let experience supersede essence. Look at this phrase, what I feel is who I am. In other words, psychology usurps biology. I thought that phrase was really powerful and it's really true when you think about so many people we interact with today. What I feel is who I am. 
And this is saying that scripturally, biblically, that's not the case. How God's designed us is really the most significant piece. We'll talk more about that in a couple weeks. Number two in your notes, the goodness of God is demonstrated in the complementary component of men and women. The goodness of God is demonstrated in the complementary component of men and women. Don is back up. Uh, in the creation account, God saw everything he created as good. He created the vegetation, and he saw that it was good. He created the sun, moon, and stars, and he saw that they were good. He created the animals, and he saw that they were good. The only time we see the words not good associated with the creation account was after he created man. And Genesis 2.18 says, <clears throat> The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Then God caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam. He took out one of Adam's ribs, and from it he created the woman. He brought her to the man, and Adam said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. God had already created all the magnificent animals. He had brought them to Adam, and Adam had named each one of them. But Eve is totally unlike any creature that God has created. She is equal to Adam in importance. She is equal in value to God. She is the only one, other than Adam, at that moment, who is created in God's image. And Adam immediately recognizes this sameness, this oneness, this complementary reality. And then starting in Genesis and all the way through the New Testament, God continues to describe how that complementary reality in marriage is made stronger when husbands and wives align their, them, themselves to the design that God has for marriage. In Ephesians 5, Paul says... Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is a big order. When we consider how Christ gave himself up for the church, for us, and how many ways he did, but the final and um, ultimate sacrifice that he made was himself when he died on the cross as payment for our sins. And then for wives, Ephesians says, Wives, submit, your, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, if we read that verse in isolation and don't have time to go to other passages that relate to it, it can bring up a lot of questions. And unfortunately, we don't have that time this morning to do that. But let me just address briefly the question that comes up of inferiority, superiority, or equality. This first quote is by Bruce Ware, and it's about authority structures in all kinds of things. It says, relationships within authority structures surround us. We live and work in them every day. We would have utter chaos without them. But such authority structures do not entail the greater value or essential superiority of those in charge. Nor do they minimize the human value or imply the essential inferiority of those under their charge. And this 
<laughs> this next quote is kind of an example of that. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this much before, but it, it really has a, a profound effect on me if, as we're talking about the fact that men and women, that husbands and wives have roles. Um, it's talking about the Trinity. And have you ever thought about the fact that the Trinity models this authority structure beautifully? This is how Wayne Grudem explains it. Though all three members of the Trinity are equal in power and in all other attributes, the Father has a greater authority. He has a leadership role among all the members of the Trinity that the Son and Holy Spirit do not have. In redemption, the Father sends the Son into the world, and the Son comes and is obedient to the Father and dies to pay for our sins. After the Son has ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes to equip and empower the church. Three persons of the Trinity, equal in power, equal in importance, and equal in deity, exercising their different roles. Similarly, two persons, husband and wife, equal in importance, equal in being image bearers of God, exercising their different roles. God's roles are from God's wisdom and reflect God's goodness to us. That's great. Thank you, Donna. What, what we're doing in this complementary part is we're saying, hey, what is that kind of uniqueness of these two sexes that work together in this marriage relationship? And that was Donna's role. My, my task in this point is to talk about what that looks like in the church. What do these complementary roles look like in a local church setting? My daughter, Aaliyah, is home on spring break. I want to welcome those of you, by, by the way, who are here on spring break, home for a little bit. I got to interact with a few of you first service. So glad that you're home and, and even that you're up on a Sunday morning, maybe doing things differently than you do in school. So we're glad to see you. Um, she, and she just passed out of her teens. She turned 20 on uh, Thursday. So it was really fun to get to celebrate that with her being home this week. And we've had some great conversations. Aaliyah is a Christian leadership major at the university that she goes to up in the Sacramento area. And in that, when we've talked, she has some great questions about what does that look like in lots of fields of her life, but what does that look like especially in the church? When she graduates, she would like to pursue a role someday in a local church, or maybe in a parachurch organization, or maybe in a nonprofit. So as it relates specifically to a local church, we have some great conversations. And so it was really cool, in her uh, studies this last semester, she had a theology class where she could really pick any topic under the sun, and then develop a research paper about it, develop a kind of an opinion about it, and she chose this idea of leadership roles for women in the church. And so I obviously get the great fun of talking about a very non-confrontational, controversial issue today on that topic. But it was great, and, and she, what she would do is she would send me stuff from her paper and go, Dad, this is what I'm learning about this, or Dad, what do you think about that? And we just had such a great dialogue, and I will tell you, I have, I think, you might disagree, I think I've valued wanting to understand this and think biblically about it for a long time in my life and ministry vocation, but I'll tell you, it takes on a new flavor when my daughter aspires to a role in leadership in 
church and go, what does that look like? So we've had very meaningful conversations. And I told her, here's two big, big ideas that I'd offer to the conversation. She, by the way, one of the biggest things that she unearthed and found great value in is a verse that's up on the screen. Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that those things actually don't exist anymore. There's no such thing as male and female. Paul's talking about every one of those relationships to people in the local church had a greater and a lesser. It's better to be Jewish than Gentile. It's better to be free than slave. Better to be a man than a woman. And so within that context, Paul's saying, you've got it all wrong because you're seeing people's value and worth through the lens of these things rather than the reality of what the gospel does is it does exactly what Donna said. It provides worth and value to every human being. And these, these inequalities are no longer seen in the gospel. And so that was powerful as we were talking that through. And on the backside of her paper, I think it was between 20 and 30 pages long, I remember her saying, Dad, I feel like I've got more clarity on some parts of this, but other parts are just as cloudy as they were before. And I said, yeah, welcome to the conversation. It's been going on for a while. And I said, for me, there's just really two big ideas that I would contribute in trying to think this through that, um, that don't make everything clear, but at least helps in a couple fronts. And I offered these to her. First off, in passages that talk about women's roles within a local church, like found in 1 Corinthians 11 or in uh, 1 Timothy 2, though there's some cultural issues that are going on, what Paul does on both fronts is he goes back to this creation account that we're looking at today. He goes back to Genesis 1 and talks about this unique headship that God's created, and, and by the way, not as though men have no authority over them. Christ is the head of man, God is the head of Christ. So there's this unique sense of headship that's presented. But the point is, is that because Paul goes back to the creation account, I think there's some significant weight we need to put into the conversation rather than calling everything cultural. So that was one thing we talked about. The second one is the specific role of elder. And as we were talking that through, I said, you know, um, for even us at Trinity Church, in case you don't know our leadership structure, it works this way. We have groups uh, of people in various roles that we call pastors and different ministry directors and other directors as well. But we do have a leadership role at Trinity called elders. And within that elder classification, they're all male, but not just because we think that's important or we say so. We get that directly from these places in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where it's giving the qualifications of an elder. And in that, it's using descriptors that are all male, for in, meaning refer to men, like that of he must be the wife or a, a one-woman man, the husband of what one wife. And goes on to say, using personal pronouns, he must be blameless. He must have a good reputation among outsiders. Those are all those pronouns that are used that way. For, so for us, as we're looking at scripture, we're just kind of going, man, everything about this particular role within the church seems to be written as though it's related to a man being in this role. That being said, one thing that was really powerful for her in her research was that when you look at the different places where spiritual gifts are outlined, specifically in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, there's no distinguisher that some gifts are for men and some are for women. It says that all followers of Jesus, male and female, they're gifted in various ways, and the gift of leadership is not male-esque. The gift of teaching is not male-esque. 
the gift of giving, on and on the list can go. There's no distinction that one is for one gender, one's for another. All of God's people are gifted in these ways. And so what it's done is it's presented a great conversation that we keep having, and it's been really healthy to just keep thinking through, God, what does that mean for us? And for us as a local church, those are just a few things that relate to the complementary nature. All of us are gifted by God who put our, who put our faith in Jesus, and those gifts are not distinguished by our gender. The reality is then within the roles of trying to go, God, how do we do that according to your word? Finally today, our third point as we're walking through, and, and don't miss this last thing as we finish up today. It's important to pursue God's word about the genders over traditions or the culture. Look at this verse that sets our mind that way from Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive. And by the way, that see to it is an imperative verb, meaning that's a directive. That's something you have to own for your own responsibility. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, watch, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Donna, go ahead. I really like the title of this last point, uh, that it's important to pursue God's word about the genders over pursuing traditions and culture. And actually, as I was thinking about it, you could almost replace the word gender with almost anything that matters in life because God's word is the plumb line. It is the authority. It is the last word on anything that truly matters. And conversely, the silence of the Bible can speak loudly too. For instance, I'd be curious to know, for many of you in this room, if you are married, have you ever had a disagreement with your spouse about which household job should be done by which person? You don't, don't need to raise your hand. <laughs> and don't try to raise the hand of your spouse either. <laughs> um, have you ever thought something like, well, it's the husband's job to make sure that there are air and the t there's air in the tires? Or it's the, <laughs> it's the woman's job to have dinner on the table every night? Actually, probably 50 years ago or so, those two jobs were pretty, pretty solid uh, as far as being recognized as such. But the problem is you can't back those up in Scripture. And oftentimes in marriages, we get bogged down with things that aren't backed up in Scripture. A better scenario is for two people to sit down and discuss how can we as a team best create a home that honors God. And then to the difference about biblical, difference between biblical manhood and the culture's view, the culture's definition of manhood, it is not the same at all. In fact, I was hard pressed to find the culture's definition of manhood because it went all over the place from one extreme to another. You can hardly tell what it is. Biblical manhood, by contrast, finds its meaning in one place, in the person of Jesus. I liked this quote, and I thought it kind of summarized well what biblical manhood embodies. It says, Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man, and through him all men have met their match and one day will bow before the brilliance and splendor of the King of Kings. That is why biblical manhood begins and ends with Jesus. 
At all times, the biblical man is met by Jesus in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and is empowered through the Holy Spirit to make much of him in and through their lives in a world that is confused about what biblical manhood is all about. And I just want to tag on to that too, that this definition of biblical manhood being all about Jesus and being a man of, of God is cross-cultural. If you look at America's definition of manhood, it's going to be different from another part of the world. But the definition of biblical manhood is the same because it's rooted in scripture and scripture is always the same. So um, when I think of a passage that describes biblical womanhood, going from manhood to womanhood, I often think of 1 Peter 3, where Peter says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Peter was addressing wives when he said this, but it applies to all women. And what he's saying is that what we wear, what we look like, what our personality is like even, whether we're outgoing or whether we're reserved, these things are not the criteria of what pleases God. What pleases God is found in our inner self. Actually, the woman who most quickly comes to my mind when I read this passage is a woman I met many years ago. I spoke about her recently in women's Bible study and the profound impact that she had on my life. Shortly after I trusted Christ uh, as my Savior when I was 22, God brought a young single woman into my life who became the biggest influence on me in how to know God through his word. Her name was Brownie. Brownie opened up a whole new world for me and for the other six single girls that she formed into a group. We met every week in our apartments and began to read this amazing book. All of us except for one were brand new believers and also brand new to reading the Bible. And we were amazed. Brownie had a strong commitment to Christ and she had a determined goal of showing us the beauty of the gospel. The gradual change in all of us was profound. That's one reason I will always be a part of a church. I will always be part of a Bible study. I will always have as my goal spending time alone with God every day by myself so that he can convict me of sin, so that he can show me people he wants me to share the gospel with, so he can reveal himself more and more to me. I won't totally meet that goal. I haven't yet, and I won't ever. <laughs> but you know what they say about goals. If you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. And that's especially true of spending time alone with God daily in his word. So when I think of what the embodiment of biblical womanhood looks like, <clears throat> I think of Brownie first, excuse me, <clears throat> and then I think of many of you in this church. As I was putting this together, I began to think of so many of you who have rubbed off on me and who have inspired me as I've just watched you living lives that are pleasing to God. So thank you for being examples of biblical womanhood to me and to others. Thank you, Donna. 
<clears throat> when you think about this issue of the genders, there are things that you might not want to be involved in the conversation, you don't want to deal with, but we know that where we are at least today, 2020, is that just walking into a restaurant or walking to a store when you have to figure out which bathroom to go to, these are things that are a part of our lives now, they're a part of the reality. And rather than developing a hard heart and a bad attitude, I put this in your notes because this is what I'm praying is my attitude moving forward, is simply this, and like Donna said, you could put this idea connected to anything in life. I wanna understand what scripture teaches and why it teaches it to form my thoughts, my attitudes and behaviors accordingly. Loving those who disagree with me and praying that they too would want to know the truth that is able to set them free. That's the attitude and posture that I'm taking in my life over anything that I see in the culture that's outside of God's design. And I want you to join us for the rest of this series because we're gonna be talking about so many of those things about how to keep looking at them through the lens of God's word and through the redemption of the gospel. What's interesting to me is about the passage that we began this point with, Colossians 2.8. It comes right after the verses that we've actually really kind of formed our whole mission statement of rooted and reaching. They come right out of it. From Colossians 2.6 and 7, so then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So we ought not be a people defined by our traditions or defined by our culture, but instead defined by living lives rooted in Jesus as we're reaching our worlds. In order to help you further today, I wanted to give you two additional resources that I think are so helpful in developing a biblical worldview, a biblical grid for understanding these conversations about gender and the sexes. The first one is the Center for uh, Faith, Sex, and Gender. Is that, did I get the name right? There it is, faith, sexuality, and gender. Uh, the president of this organization's name is Preston Sprinkle. He was a professor at a school here in Southern California called Eternity Bible College. And then he went out and started this. And this is such a helpful, needful um, resource to have. Even their uh, multiple places in his website contain the phrase grace and truth. And again, that's our posture. It's how Jesus came, John chapter one, full of both grace and truth, holding the hands of both of these things at the same time. And one of the quotes I wanted to give you came from an article I was reading from Preston, um, and, this, and it's up on the screen. Related to the idea of the distinction of sex and gender, he writes this, the Bible itself doesn't separate sex from gender. That is, <clears throat> it uses male and female to cover both aspects, that of the biological, and then the cultural psychological of the human experience. And the reason I was really encouraged and just really profited from reading this article, because I didn't realize when I use the word gender, I use it most often as a synonym, always actually, for the word sexes or the idea of a male and female. But Preston's article was so helpful to me in realizing that often when I'm talking to other people, they're not using the word gender that way. A really important phrase is the word self-conception, meaning how do I view myself? And I just learned, and you have to know, in the culture that we live in, the definition of words is crucial. 
So next time that you're having a conversation with someone and they're using a word maybe like gender, it's important, just ask them, what do you mean when you say that word? That's not an unkind thing to say, but to say, let's get on the same page as we're talking about what we're talking about so I can understand fully what you mean. So that, that website is huge. The other one is another uh, group of people, the Center for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, couldn't be more appropriate for today's topic. They put a paper together in 2017 I've referenced before called the Nashville Statement. You can go on their website and look at it. It's a sequence of about 14 different affirmations and a subsequent denial, so 14 articles basically, on just coming to a summit that they came to in the city of Nashville, trying to say this is what we believe a biblical perspective on manhood and womanhood looks like in a summary way. <clears throat> One of the signatories on that original statement is one of our own friends, Eric Tonis, a professor at Biola who's been here to speak a couple times. And I won't go through all of them, but I just want to read one of the articles today as it relates to our conversation. They write, we affirm that God created Adam and Eve, the first human beings in his own image, equal before God as persons and distinct as male and female. Conversely, we deny that the divinely ordained differences between male and female render them unequal in dignity or worth. So there's 13 other articles. You could read those for yourself, but very, very helpful for the cultural situations that we're finding ourselves in. Just to go, God, I want to think biblically. How do I do that? So two resources. This is how we finish today. What gets redeemed? Every week when we go through this sequence, this conversation, we're gonna be asking ourselves this question. We're gonna look for this thread that is helping us understand, God, if I have lived outside of your design in terms of how I think or my attitudes or my behaviors, what am I to do? Is it, am I just hopeless? And the word is absolutely not. And what I wanna do from the beginning today is I wanna lay down this thing, I think it's being fair even to the book that I recommended at the beginning of today. We've talked about related to these two male and femaleness of our humanity, the holy sexuality, but I wanna to finish today with this clear reminder of the importance of the gospel. Listen to everything that I say in this next statement because I want you to walk away with this big idea from the very beginning. <clears throat> What transgender people need most isn't sexual identity clarity, but Jesus. Jesus. And the hope that he extends in the gospel. What same-sex couples need most isn't a God-honoring application of their attraction, but Jesus. And the love that he provides that they're so desperately in search of. What a man and a woman who are sleeping together who aren't married need most isn't purity, but Jesus. And understanding that he came to bring them life and life to the full according to his design. I heard a great comment on a podcast this week and I guarantee you if you would embrace this, you're gonna be fine in the conversation moving forward. You are more evil than you believe and more loved than you can imagine. What a great comment that summarizes the gospel. You and I are more evil than we believe, but more loved than we can imagine. And if you will walk out embracing that truth and keeping that at the forefront of your life moment by moment this week, you're going to be fine related to these conversations of gender and manhood and womanhood. Let me pray. 
Father God, we come before you today as a group of people who desperately want to know you, who want to know your design for our lives, and a group of people who are so grateful that we are made right with you, not by religious codes and by trying harder, but because of what Jesus accomplished for us. God, apart from that grace of the gospel, we are all lost. So we say thank you for that, and we pray that over the course of the series, you would help us to think, help us to have attitudes, help us to have behaviors that look more and more like what you've described in your word, that look more and more like how Jesus would live among us today. If you're here today and you would say, Todd, I've never made a commitment to Jesus. I've never responded to his invitation made in the gospel I have great news for you because like we said, it's the most important thing you need. It begins by A, in the midst of all the goodness like Donna talked about today that God created in his perfect creation, sin came into the world and as a result, you've come into the world a sinner. It begins by A, admitting that you need a savior. B, believing that Jesus is the only Savior available, that he lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, was risen supernaturally on the third day. Believing that Jesus alone can make you right with the Father. It leads you to see, choosing to say, Jesus, I'm gonna put my value, my worth, my confidence, not in what I bring to the table, but what in you accomplished for me. And I want to live my life living out the mission, the example of Jesus in my world. That's your first step in response to the gospel. And I would pray that before you even leave this place today, you make that decision. Father, this week, help us to live as your people. And would you do a redemptive work in and through us? We love you and pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.